Welcome to the OKC First podcast. Together, we're learning to do three things. Friendship with God. Friendship with one another. And open friendship for the sake of the world. For more information about OKC First, please visit OKCFirst.com. We are in the fourth uh, Sunday of Advent in the fourth Sunday of a series called Rooted in Hope, the fourth of six sermons. And uh, we have been saying to you in not so subtle ways that roots matter, that life is just going to happen. And so your roots are going to go a long way in determining how you're going to survive the life that's inevitably going to happen. And we've had opportunity to talk about Noah a little bit that first week out of Matthew 24. We talked for a couple weeks then about John the Baptist, if you'll remember. And although we are right to say every year during the Lenten season, you gotta look at yourself, you gotta look at Jesus and confess the difference in hopes of closing that gap, we actually said, well, maybe it's not a bad thing to look at John the Baptist, look at yourself, confess that difference. I've got another one for us today. Maybe it's okay to take a look at yourself and maybe even this chronically normal human being that we understand to be Joseph, the father of Jesus. Maybe you look at yourself, you look at Joseph, and you notice where there might be differences. Notice where you might have been pressured or pushed to make a different decision. Back to trees and roots, though. We have some decisions to make. So uh, we have been daily, and by we I mean uh, Brit has daily been caring for the root system here in this tree. And soon we will have a decision to make. We're going to have to plant this thing somewhere out there here on our property. And also checked up on the progress of our seedling that's going to come from the survivor tree. It will be here, be delivered on January the 7th. And similarly, we're going to have to make a good decision as to where we're going to plant that portion of the survivor tree here on our campus. You know, it matters it matters, Taylor Fleming, where you plant these things. It matters. It matters because you can plant these places, these trees, in places where they just will not survive. Right? Cannot plant them on top of a sidewalk. Can't do it. Can't do it in really, really shallow ground. Probably shouldn't do it amongst thorns where there will be competition. Got to find good soil. And I've been saying to you, look, You've got some decisions to make. It's not like all of this just happens to you. You have some decisions to make. You are responsible to do something with the grace that's been afforded to you, as I have, with the grace that's been afforded to me. And this is one of those sermons today. If you have decided, I am going to cast my lot with these people called Christians. I am going to be rooted and rooted amongst these people who believe. That's great. I would submit to you, though, that that's still a huge patch of ground, and there are some places within that huge patch of ground that are better to root than others. Where are you rooting as you identify yourself as a believer? Are you rooting, this will make more sense at the end of the sermon, are you rooting closer to the well, the source, or to the fence, the boundary? Are you rooting as you find yourself amongst the people of God, this movement of God, are you trying to root as closely as you can to the source, the well, let's say? Or do you find yourself, as a believer, rooting closer to the boundaries, the edges? It's an important question. 
And I think that there is a right answer, or at least one answer that's righter than another answer. How's that? I think we have to sort that through and make some sense of it. I have a, uh, a favorite hymn. Oh, Holy Night is my favorite hymn. It's just not moving there. There we go. Oh, Holy Night is my favorite hymn, and this is my favorite line in my favorite hymn. And in the process of studying uh, this week and getting ready to tell the story of Joseph, I came across a story kind of late in the week, and you're going to have to forgive me. I want, I want to read the story so I don't leave any important pieces out. But this is the origin story of O Holy Night. Ready? Here we go. In 1847, a man by the name of Rochmar was the commissioner of wines in a small French town. Some of the Nazarenes have already opted out. Well, then I can't sing it anymore. <laughs> Known more for his poetry than his church attendance, it probably shocked him when the parish priest asked the commissioner to pen a poem for Christmas Mass. Nevertheless, the poet was honored to share his talents with the church. In a dusty coach traveling down a bumpy road to France's capital city, Rochmar considered the priest's request, and using the Gospel of Luke as his guide, he imagined witnessing the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. Thoughts of being present on the blessed night inspired him, and by the time he arrived in Paris, Cantique de Noël, had been completed, Cantique de Noël. Moved by his own work, he decided that his Cantique de Noël was not just a poem, but a song in need of a master musician's hand, and not musically inclined himself, the poet turned to one of his friends, Adolphe Charles Adams, for help. The son of a well-known classical musician, Adolphe had studied in the Paris Conservatory. His talent and fame brought requests to write works for orchestras and ballets all over the world, yet the lyrics that his friend had given him must have challenged the composer in a fashion unlike anything he had ever received before. He was a man of Jewish ancestry. <laughs> for him, the words of Cantique de Noel represented a day he didn't celebrate and a man that he did not view as the son of God. Nevertheless, he quickly went to work attempting to marry an original score to the beautiful words. Adam's finished work pleased both the poet and the priest, and the song was performed just three weeks later at a midnight mass on Christmas Eve. Now, initially, Cantique de Noël was wholeheartedly accepted by the church in France, and the song quickly found its way into various Catholic Christmas services. But when Rochmar walked away from the church and became part of a socialist movement, and when church leaders discovered that Adam's was a Jew, the song, which had quickly grown to be one of the most beloved Christmas songs in France, was suddenly and uniformly denounced by the church because, of course, it was. <laughs> the heads of the French Catholic Church of the time deemed Cantique de Noël as unfit for church services because of its lack of musical taste all of a sudden and total absence of the spirit of religion all of a sudden. Yet even as the church tried to bury the Christmas song, French people continued to sing it, and a decade later, a reclusive American writer brought it to a whole new audience halfway around the world. And not only did this American writer by the name of John Sullivan Dwight feel that this wonderful Christmas song needed attention in America, he saw something else in the song that moved him beyond the story of the birth of Christ. He was an ardent abolitionist. Dwight strongly identified with this with these lines, truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break for the slave is our brother and in his name 
all oppression shall cease. The text supported Dwight's own view of slavery in the South and published in his magazine, Dwight's English translation of now, O Holy Night, quickly found favor in America, especially in the North during the Civil War. This, I love this, back in France, even though the song had been banned from the church for almost two decades, I would submit because those folks were rooted in the wrong place. Many commoners still sang Cantique de Noel at home. Legend has it that on Christmas Eve 1871, in the midst of fierce fighting between the armies of Germany and France during the Franco-Prussian War, a French soldier suddenly jumped out of his muddy trench. Both sides stared at the seemingly crazed man. Boldly standing with no weapon in his hand or at his side, he lifted his eyes to the heavens and sang Cantique de Noel. After completing all three verses, a German infantryman climbed out of his hiding place and answered with a German Christmas hymn, From Heaven Above to Earth I Come. And the story goes that the fighting stopped for the next 24 hours, while the men on both sides observed a temporary peace in honor of Christmas Day. Perhaps the story had a part in the French church once again embracing Cantique de Noël and holiday services. Fast forward a few years. Adams, the musical composer, had been dead for many years, and Rokemar and Dwight were old men when on Christmas Eve 1906, Reginald Fessenden, a 33-year-old university professor and former chief chemist for Thomas Edison, did something long thought impossible. Using a new type of generator, Fessenden spoke into a microphone, and for the first time in history, a man's voice was broadcast over airwaves. And he read, and it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. He began in a clear, strong voice, hoping he was reaching across the distances he supposed he would. But then after reading, Fessenden picked up his violin and played O Holy Night, making O Holy Night the first song ever sent through the air via radio waves. When the carol ended, so did the broadcast, but not before music had found a new medium that would take it around the world. Ugh. But it almost didn't happen because I think believing people were rooted in the wrong place. Everybody with me so far? Have I frustrated anybody yet? Because I'm about to. <laughs> because believing people can be rooted in the wrong place. Doesn't mean you're not believing people. It means, and I'll say it again, it means that believing people can be rooted in the wrong place, in the wrong place. Where are you rooted? Within the patch of ground reserved for believing people, where are you rooted? Rooted. Where am I rooted? Where are we as a movement, as a church? Where are we rooted? Where was Joseph rooted? Because like I've said to you already today, it seems to me that we have something to learn from this Joseph, right? Let's, let's just walk through this story that is maybe dangerously familiar to us. Now, the birth actually could have been translated Genesis, and that's on purpose because they want you to think that something that big is going on, as big as Genesis 1. Now, the Genesis of Jesus, the Messiah, took place in this way. 
When his mother Mary, whoops, when his mother Mary, go back one slide for me, Shane, had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Oh, scandal. And we all know that religious folks really love their scandals. Amen. That was a better amen than I was expecting to get right there. <laughs> this was an arranged marriage, as so many marriages would have been. That was the culture. That's what had happened. We don't really know how long Mary and Joseph would have known one another. We know that in all likelihood, the decision wasn't Mary's or Joseph to marry. It probably wasn't. And there was probably a long lead up. If this was in any way typical, there was a long lead up to the day of the ceremony. In fact, there was a season of betrothal when everything was made public and out loud. Now, they were actually kept apart during the season of betrothal. The other thing we don't know is how Mary felt about Joseph or how Joseph felt about Mary, though there are some indications. What we don't really know was Mary wild about Joseph. Could Joseph not wait to spend his life with Mary? We, we don't really know. But then the unthinkable happened. She was pregnant, y'all. She was pregnant. Next slide, Shane. Her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man. Now, this could mean a variety of things, this, this terminology of righteous. Now, it, it, it could mean that this was a law-abiding citizen, and we do think it meant that. But I, we think it meant something more than that, too. Joseph was a righteous man, so righteous, let's say, rightly related, and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, so he planned to dismiss her quietly. Because, i got to tell you, there was provision in the law to do a whole lot worse than that to Mary, if you are the aggrieved party, as Joseph was. In the Old Testament, in Old Testament era, perhaps this would have been a death sentence for Mary. We don't think that that particular thing, although there is some indication that there was still some willingness to put people to death who had done terrible things, but we don't think that perhaps this was on the table. I don't, I don't think that Joseph was weighing whether or not to have Mary killed, but what was fully within his purview and fully within his rights as the aggrieved party, fully within his rights to have like a public legal trial to determine if Mary was raped, to determine if Mary had been somehow seduced by a person of great power or wealth, or just to determine whether or not Mary is just a bad person. In all of this, Joseph could have undertaken. He could have done it. And perhaps if he had completely rooted his life of faith in the letter of the law, maybe that's what he would have done. Now again, if I haven't started frustrating some of you, you may not be paying attention. <laughs> Given all of these possibilities that were available to him, absolutely available to him, in fact, I don't even know if it would have gotten a mention in the annals of history because it happened a lot, apparently. You have this arranged marriage, you have this season of betrothal, and then something happens and there's a mistake. It just happened one time, but there's a mistake. 
But because of that one-time mistake, a woman is publicly humiliated and essentially kicked out of everything. And folks still feel badly for the young man. All of that was available to Joseph. But Joseph, folks, prior to the visitation of the angel, it's an important piece, determined that he did not want to put Mary through all of that. Did not want to put Mary through all of that, perhaps, perhaps because he cared for Mary, certainly because his first priority was not his reputation, right? And so he determined that he would dismiss her quietly. Now, having already determined that he would dismiss her quietly, then he was visited by this angel, right? (laughs) Can we just for a second imagine what it must have been like to be Joseph? You've already made the decision to be a good man and to not do damage to Mary, but you weren't going to take her as your wife because people can do math, right? You weren't going to take her to be your wife, and then an angel shows up and says, hey, Joseph, son of David. Okay, now, that is an important important phrase right there because just a few verses earlier, if you have your Bibles open, you can see it. There's this long listing of the genealogy of Jesus so that we can see, given those two passages taken together, that this Jesus character is in fact the son of God and at the same time you need to kind of expand your brain so you can get both of these things at the same time because they're both true. Son of God and son of man. And, And Joseph, as a matter of fact, and in the line of King David. So this angel knows who Joseph is. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Again, are are you empathizing at all with Joseph? God made her pregnant. Go ahead and take her as your wife. Yes, people are going to do the math. But go ahead and do it. You start to get some sense of where Joseph must have been rooted. She will bear a son, and you are to name him because names had great significance. Throughout Scripture, names have great significance. And so we want you to name this kid. This wasn't actually a very unusual name. We want to name him, for us, it would be like naming somebody Joshua. That's just not out of the realm of possibility that a kid would be named Josh or Joshua. We want you to name this kid Yeshua, which actually means God saves. For he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Mm. Next slide, Shane. Look. The virgin or the young woman shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which is God with us. 
So let's talk just for a second. The parable of the sower we've already kind of mentioned. The parable of the sower goes out flinging around these kernels of the gospel, right? The gospel. This, this gospel, which I think every time we say gospel and we reference this good news, we have to be speaking of grace, unmerited favor, unusual love, best demonstrated in the cross. Again, again, we misunderstand the cross if somehow we see this cross as representative of God's anger, indignation in the presence of sin. We are getting the cross when we understand the cross to be a representation of how far love will go to make love's point. Everybody with me? That is the gospel. That is the gospel. So this gospel is strewn about. Everybody has access to it, right? But some of it falls on a hard path. Birds come and eat it. Some hearts are that hard, by the way. And some of it falls in thorny soil. Some of it in very shallow ground. So, man, it springs up quickly, but then dies because it has no root. And then some falls in good soil. And man, it is productive. Now keep that mindset in mind as we go to a different passage. Hit the button there, Shane. There is a story in John 8 about a woman caught in the act of adultery. Are you familiar with this story? You remember this? I'm going to assume somebody in the room is not familiar with this story. There is a woman caught in the act of adultery. Caught by whom, you might ask? Well, by people who have rooted. They're a part of the faith system, the faith tradition, but they have rooted right there next to the letter of the law. And they catch her doing something that in the letter of the law would require her death, her execution. And so now they see an opportunity here to go and try to catch Jesus in Jesus' own words to see whether or not he actually believes Scripture. Right? Don't we do that purity test thing all the time? Yep. And so they grab her and they drag her in front of Jesus. And immediately you have a contest between two different representations of God, two different groups, let's say, who have rooted in different places within the giant patch of ground known as the believing people of God. And so... They are reading the law, reading the Old Testament to Jesus. <laughs> and they say to Jesus, hey, Jesus, uh, she has made a terrible, terrible mistake. Now, due to the nature of the mistake she made, we brought these rocks with us because she deserves, and in some sense even requires for the purity of the movement, that we execute her right here. That's what God would do. That's what God would have us do. Now, if you remember Jesus, the master of all things, including silence, including silence, is putting a different kind of skin and flesh on the heartbeat of God and on the heartbeat of the kingdom mission. So what Jesus does Surveys the situation, takes it all in. Actually wastes some time, but maximizes the silence. 
by drawing a little bit into the dirt. We don't know what he was drawing. There are some theories. I, I, don't know. I don't know if Jesus is doing anything but just letting silence do the work of silence. He stands up finally and he says, tell you what, I see where you're rooted. I see where your faith, your faith is rooted, rooted. I'm rooted in a little bit different place, but I tell you what, if we're going to go by letter of the law as you are reciting it over here, let's do this. Any of you who are without sin can cast the first stone. Because if we're going to do a purity test, then let's, let's everybody do a purity test. And then Jesus backs out of the way. Now again, hopefully there's somebody in the room that hasn't heard this story before. Jesus backs out of the way, having laid down that particular gauntlet. And again, silence reigns. That silence is only broken by the sound of these rocks that they had brought with them to execute the woman on sight in that moment. The silence is broken when those rocks finally tumble off the fingers of these accusers and they hit the ground with a thud. Hear it, hear it. And then one at a time, having dropped their rocks, <laughs> they walk off. Until finally, it's only this woman and this particular understanding of God helps her up, dusts her off, and said, I wonder where they went. <laughs> where did they all go? Her response was something like, well, they've left. My accusers, my condemners, they've left. And Jesus says, I don't condemn you either. Go now and leave your life of sin. Now, there are some folks who would say, aha, see, go now and leave your life of sin. See, if she messes up again, that's when they stone her. think so. I'm not at all saying that what she did didn't matter. I'm not saying if she messes up again that somehow that won't matter. I, I'm not talking about a cheap grace here. I'm talking about a particular understanding of what it is to be God and then the people of God. One group has rooted next to, let's say, the fence, let's call the fence the law, the boundary, rooted very close to the law, to the boundary. Now, they're still somehow within the reservation of faith, but they have rooted very close to the law. Is that you? Because there's another, there's another option for you. You can root rather than so close to the law whereby you find justification to distinguish between yourself and somebody else and to distinguish who's more important than someone else to kind of keep score, you can root there. It's, you're probably not ever going to be the life of anybody's party. <laughs> or you can root next to the source, the well, 
His law is love, and his gospel is peace. That particular law and gospel, do you suspect that that particular law and gospel springs up closer to the fence or to the well? The well. The well. Joseph, miraculously, even before the angel came and said something to him, seems to have had the capacity to empathize, to worry about, to love Mary, even though he was rightfully aggrieved, perhaps even publicly humiliated, and yet still, still, again, before the visitation of the angel, yet still he seems to have chosen the well over the wall. And then, and then the angel comes and says, you know what? <laughs> We're going to build on this. <laughs> We're going to build on this, Joseph. You're going to name this son of yours, God saves, like all the time, God saves. So that every time you look at him, every time you call his name, you are bringing back to mind this gospel of love and peace, God saves, God saves. This fourth Sunday of Advent, we have, uh, we've had quite a journey and again, we've got a couple of weeks to go as we celebrate the birth. If we keep reading, you'll see that when Joseph awoke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took her as his wife, but he had no marital relations with her until she had born a son, and he named him Jesus. Look at yourself. Look at Joseph. Maybe measure where it is that you would be different. And maybe ask yourself this important question on this fourth Sunday of Advent. Where am I rooted? Now, no matter, next slide, Shane, no matter the answer to that question, no matter where you find yourself rooted, I think all of us need to aspire to be rooted closer and closer and closer to the well and to the source and this is one of the ways that we will continue to do that as we continue to remember and rehearse and retell this particular story. So if you were helping us to set this table, please come and help us now. Heavenly Father, our prayer is that you would bless these elements. And with them, God, would you move us closer to the well, closer and closer to the source, closer and closer to a place that we figure that both Joseph and John the Baptist and Mary would have been. God, root us in the kinds of habits and practices that will allow us to hear you, to hear you. Root us in the kinds of habits and practices that will allow us to understand Scripture for what it is, a testimony to the truth of God seen in Christ. God, with those lenses, then send us back to Scripture so that then we can read and interpret, but always in keeping with the heartbeat of God seen most clearly in the person and the passion of Christ.
So in a moment, I'm gonna ask all of us, regardless of where you are rooted, regardless. Because maybe you recognize that at the very least, you're not as close to the source as you would like to be. I'm gonna ask all of us to come and partake in this liturgy, this sacrament, this moment, that we believe, that we believe over a period of time will in fact effectively move you closer and closer and closer to the source. So I'll ask you to stand to your feet and exit your pews to the left and to come forward with your hands cupped. We ask you to come forward with your hands cupped because this that you're going to receive can't be gotten any other way. It comes to you as a gift. You can't grab it, you can't buy it, you can't charge it. It comes to you as a gift. And let me tell you, you need it to be a gift. Now someone, as you approach someone holding a plate of bread, will snap off a piece, place it into your hands and say, this is the body of Christ broken for you. Take that piece of bread, dip it then into the cup. When you do, that person will say, this is the blood of Christ shed for you, and then take and eat. And then if you would, please find a place to pray. Now you can circle right back around to your pew and you can pray right there. You certainly can. You can come forward and pray at one of these kneeling benches, these mourner's benches, and we may not know why you're here to pray, but at some point someone will come by, me or somebody else, and touch you just to remind you and communicate to you that you are not alone because you're not. Or maybe you want to find your way to one of these side padded altars where people come to pray prayers for healing, and someone will meet you there. Someone will meet you there and pray that prayer for healing. Physical, mental, emotional, familial. Any kind of healing you need, this God is interested in that prayer for healing. There's also a bowl here, representative of the moment of your baptism. And if you need to be reminded where you are rooted, this is a good way to do it. Just dip your fingers into this water. And the chill of this water will remind you the moment that you were included. If you can't come to us, Jason and Katie will come to you. Last question you might ask is, well, who is eligible? Is it okay for me to come? Here, here's the thing. If you recognize your need for grace, no matter what your morning or weekend or week or month or year or life has been like, if you today recognize your need for grace, this is the perfect place for you. And may God reroute us all closer to the source. Closer and closer, closer to the source. It was on the night that he was portrayed that our Savior took bread, and he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body, broken for you. And every time you eat of it, including today, remember me. In the same way later, he took the cup, held it up before them and said, and this is my blood, the blood of a new covenant. And every time you drink it, including today, remember me. Now all across the sanctuary, if you would, stand to your feet. Exit your pews to the left and come forward with your hands cupped to receive these gifts of God meant to resource the people of God.